This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie. I'm Danielle. And uh, we're back to talk about the cinema. How are you? <laughs> I'm all right. I mean, I'm just, I'm such a tender lady lately. I watched, I finally started watching the Fran Leibovitz doc, uh, documentary on Netflix, The Pretend It's a City, one that she's, she's in conversation with Martin Scorsese. And it's so, I mean, I'm I'm in touch with my emotions enough to know why I'm doing this. But as soon as they showed New York, I burst into tears. Well, duh, because you love New like, York. I keep doing this, though, where I'm just like, I'm fine. Ah. <laughs> it's never come on so quickly as it has in the last year. <laughs> Well, I got to tell you, New York is easy to love. That's what that's my perception of it. Like people who love New York really love it. And it even yeah. somebody who has never lived there like me. I mean, New York is seems so iconic and amazing. So yeah. when it's good, it's really good. You know what it's I mean? It's really good. And it's like this year has been so hard. And I do miss my family, but I miss my friends so much. And it's, um, you know, at, at this point, usually I would say... I go back to New York like five or six times a year. I try to find a way and to not have been there at all for a year has just been like really tugging at me. So just to see someone who is so and it's just such a great series. It's a great documentary. It's like she is so funny and she is so she says things in real life that I've also said on this podcast. And I'm like, yes, we are kindred asshole spirits yeah i was gonna say she's a classic grump which i have a lot to say about in this episode as 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 will be revealed shortly yes um, but i but i also love that she i mean what a case for having a signature look completely and that is where i mean i think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago where I've worn stuff for so long that it's just come back into style. But what she's doing is a little bit different, which is like, this is it. This is how I want to look forever. And I actually don't care if it's in style or not. <laughs> yeah, it we it's going to weather the storm. Yes. Know? And I like that. Like, just change a boot. Just change a boot to a shoe. And that's the only change through the decades. It's always the button down, the jeans, the overcoat. Hair parted in the middle. Maybe I'll wear a cowboy boot today. Maybe I'll wear a loafer. But that's it. That's the only change you're getting. <laughs> well, but also I feel like the the structure of her look is not completely ostentatious. Like, you mm -hmm. know, if I if I was a person that like came onto the scene and was immediately wearing like low rise denim jeans with patchwork and you know, like that look that we were talking about in the um couple episodes before about the uh 
early oh, 2000s. Channing Tatum. Yeah. yeah, the Channing Tatum looks. Now, <laughs> yeah. if that was my signature look, like if I just came into existence having that look and thought, I should keep this look forever, it will be iconic one day, I would probably reconsider. But, Completely. But her look is so, like, it's just almost kind of basic, but it's timeless, so it's like it'll work for her forever, you know? Completely. It's, it's, it's really, it's just admirable, and I really... You know, I was thinking about how we didn't discuss it, but she was the um, the judge in Wolf of Wall Street. And I was just really thinking oh, about was she. I didn't yeah. even re- did. Yeah. I, I'm so dumb. I didn't even realize that. Wow. <laughs> it's like a two minute scene. Wow. But it's so funny. But it made me think about her friendship with Martin Scorsese. And he laughs so much when she talks. And it's just really joyful to see friends who have been friends for a while still be able to bring that level of like joy and humor out of each other um and she's just she is so funny and so perfectly new york and it just every shot made me miss the city so much you know i was a huge interview magazine person when i was a teenager like really yeah but you read interview and that's cool you were cool as hell no i wasn't what it was literally like me being like i need guidance on how to be like a normal person because I will devolve if I don't. But I do adore the idea of you missing New York because of Fran Lebowitz. Like I just, I, know. I do. Because I do. I also miss that personality. I miss that kind of energy. Like I just genuinely do miss everything about that city. So was the documentary like it was good? I mean, it was like really i mean i think people i know that have watched it say that that it's great and they love her so yeah it's like six or seven episodes and i've only watched the first two but it made me laugh so hard yeah it's it's episode by episode on netflix and it just it really it's good because it's not that prescriptive like let me sit down and interview this grand dame of new york it's just like two friends kind of chatting about things that are interesting to them but she really does have this kind of unabashed like um it, it's it's like a very pure sense sense of herself so she's not she doesn't hold back and i kind of i love watching people like that talk i also love people too cuz this is something that i envy about new york that i'm not sure atlanta has i mean i could be wrong don't get on my case at aliens cuz seriously like i don't know the answer to this But I also love like anyone that sort of like earned the right to complain about a city or to at least speak about a city, especially a place like New York. Right. So it's almost like these people who have just lived there their entire lives, they have participated in, you know, the world that they're in. And then it's many, many years later and they have these, you know, really baked in opinions about everything about where they Mm -hmm. live and that's what makes her so great right is that she is that grand dame and i feel like that that only seems to be inherent to great cities right i mean unless there is a person uh in like grand rapids michigan who is the fran lebowitz of grand rapids michigan or is like who's the who's the fran lebowitz of orlando like you know someone's nana (laughs) (laughs) completely like that is 100 percent what's special about her is that not only at this point in time but i think there's no point in time where we could have another person like her in new york a lot of people try and that's what's the what sucks 
Um, we've kind of started this lexicon where we use the word unapologetic all the time. And I don't understand that. I don't understand why the assumption is that we should be apologizing for anything right off the bat. Um, but I do think that she is an unabashed fan of truth and being herself. And so she's just kind of herself. And that is it's not put on. She doesn't care what people think. She's really a part of a dying breed. I think that there is there's a lot of people who try to be like her. That's part of why the city has changed so dramatically in recent years is that everyone comes there with an idea of what they think New York is and how they think they should be in it based on fictional characters or heroes. And so everyone shows up and wants to be Carrie from Sex and the City or they want to be Fran Leibowitz or they want to be. And no one is just who they are. They show up with these preconceived notions of who they are. Yeah. So it's just kind of different. Yeah, I, I and I have to say, too, I mean, I don't want to blame the Internet all the time for things, but I also think that like the Internet, you know, has sort of allowed people to create a whole vision of what they think something is like, like mm-hmm. how they think a person in New York lives, how, you know, and you're right. It a lot of the guidance comes from television and movies, but like also just, you know, for for somebody like Fran Leibowitz, there wasn't like the internet to like look up every cool band and every cool restaurant and every cool, you know, sort of place to hang out. Right. It was just sort of like a different type of life. There was no blueprint. There's no blueprint. No blueprint. And also just sort of like no one, you just had to have like lived a certain amount of years before you could start getting kind of grouchy about some stuff. That's kind of how I feel. <laughs> just let things happen. Like, you know, like, I don't know. Right. Like, it's a... I waited a long time before I was like really loudmouthed about where I'm from. And now, bitch, I'm fucking on. Like, I'm just like, <laughs> I lived there for 30 years. I have a fucking right. You know, so I hear you. And also, is it is it AT aliens? I always thought it was Atlians. <laughs> I love you so fucking much. <laughs> I'm real literal about that name. (laughs) This is another is Leonardo DiCaprio Italian moment. It's going to be like every week now where I'm just like, I don't know. It sounds like he could have been Swedish. You're like, his name is Vincenzo. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my God. I'm laughing so hard. This is like when you're first learning like new words or like whenever you learn a new word and you haven't heard somebody say it yet. Yes. So you're like, I don't know how to pronounce it. I'll just pronounce it how it is in my head. I have no idea if it's Atlians, Atlians. What did you say it was? Atlians? Atlians. I can't fucking breathe. Atlians. from atlanta i have killed millie Uh, millie is is, is struggling to function right now tell me in the wake of my being a total fool how are you doing this week no i i can't recover from that too much too much good shit just happened for me to even move on um well the only the only thing that has happened literally in the week since we last sat down to do this podcast is that 
the DiCaprio hive is lit as hell. They mm. are in true shock and disbelief that I've never seen Titanic and Romeo and Juliet and have been very good to tell me about that. Well, I feel like the hive, the hive is assuming that you're like actively against these things and that if you wanted to watch them, you couldn't access them. And that is not what's happening. <laughs> you have a preference of this actor's work and that's what's happening. <laughs> but it's so funny that when did this move like 1996 is when Romeo and Juliet came out. Mm -hmm. So there has been literal decades in between <laughs> now and then and people are still like what <laughs> you thought it was a safe space <laughs> i know i don't even have uh, like i am not against it like at this point no. i feel like i'm probably more interested in seeing romeo and juliet maybe than titanic just out of general curiosity but it's not as if i'm against it right. i just didn't see it but also I have to say, and this is something that happens on Twitter, especially a lot. Everybody assumes that everybody's the same age, I think, where the timelines of people as they're growing up and how they've gotten into certain things are completely different. Right. Right. Like I said in that last episode, like my sister, who is three years younger than me, obsessed with Leonardo DiCaprio. I'm three years older. I'm like, eh, could take him or leave him at the time. Right. Completely. Because when Titanic came out. I was already in college. I was already into my whole like foreign film cinephile bullshit that I would have never wanted to see a movie like Titanic because I'm like, yo, that's like the most popular movie of all time. Why would I see that crap or whatever? And that was a big deal for us. And that's something that people also don't understand is how big a deal it was for us to have been made into outcasts for most of our lives and not participating in popular culture is what sustained our beliefs in who we were or, you know, like not participating in popular popular culture wasn't open to us as a pathway for a long time because we were excluded from that side of life. And, and also never underestimate the way that being a quote unquote sellout was a mm. huge thing in the nineties, because I'll tell you, and this is maybe shameful. I apologize to Claire Danes. This is pre Latisse Claire Danes. So of course <laughs> anything goes. <laughs> But when she did My So-Called Life, which was, I want to say it was like 93 or 94. I'm not entirely sure. Mm -hmm. I was like, who is this amazing ingenue who is living my exact life on this TV show? Okay. Yes. By the time she was at Romeo and Juliet, I was like, uh, really? Like, wow. Now she's like all over the place and she's in this huge movie with this other huge movie star and she's no longer my like underground love she's like mm -hmm. on every magazine in america they and got I was her. like never <laughs> never underestimate that that is illogical and stupid to most people from looking at it from today's eyes but like at the time that was a huge deal and it, nowadays it's like everyone's trying to be popular and well-known but back then that was not the steez yeah, man. I mean, you would get docked for like the dumbest shit. Like you would get docked if your song was in a commercial. Like if you were a mm -hmm. band and your song was in like a popular commercial, you're like, ah, it's over. We don't like them anymore. I mean, shit. I remember when like Green Day went to a major label and put out Dookie. Yes. And everybody in my high school was like, fuck them. 
<laughs> I mean, that's like absurd. Oh my god, now. Nirvana like smells like Teen Spirit. People are like, Bleach is better album. I can't believe they sold out like that. And I'm like, exactly. can people live, please? <laughs> like, if their music is good, do you not want as many people as possible to hear it? We were totally brainwashed in the weirdest way, the weirdest way. And I also think there's something to be said for. These these movies, there are certain movies that are very important at certain points in your life that will not withstand the test of time if you didn't see them in that moment. So, for example, I've never seen Repo Man and I never will. You know why? Because I am not an angry fucking punk metal piece of shit asshole anymore. <laughs> that movie's yeah. not going to hit me the same way. Oh, my God. I mean, that happens all the time to me, too. It's like there are movies that I saw at a certain age that I will literally never watch again because I'm like, how could I do that? Like totally. cannibal holocaust. <laughs> what on earth? <laughs> like there was a movie called cannibal holocaust. Oh, no. it, it was, you know, a, a movie about cannibals in the jungle. That is so crazy. When I was like a teenager, you know, I was so attracted to watching like really transgressive, really fucked up shit. Mm -hmm. And now I just, I'm not like, I'm just not, I've changed like that had its time and place. I mean, that's kind of literally, literally the ship has sailed on Titanic because <laughs> I feel like, what don't I know? <laughs> that boat has been underwater for so long. That there's they've they've redug it up since I could have watched the movie. Like they found everything there is to find about the Titanic. And that's how I feel about you and Romeo and Juliet and Titanic. It's like it was a moment and it didn't it wasn't appealing. I've already sent you the gif of Paul Rudd dancing, and that's all you need to know about <laughs> Romeo and Juliet. You know, I I, I appreciate that because then it's like, oh, it gets me out of sitting through a movie. Um <laughs> But just because we watch so many movies now, it's insane. The technology has changed and sometimes it works in your favor. You can exactly. just watch a GIF. Exactly. But I do. I am a proponent, though, normally of of watching like really popular movies like much later in life. Like I saw Risky Business for the first time only like a month ago. Uh, the thing about Titanic and Romeo and Juliet was that. There were people like on and a lot, some of my friends, I'm not calling you out, fam, but I'm just saying that y'all were like fucking floored. <laughs> and I'm like, is that really that shocking? Like, are we shocked by this anymore? I don't know. People were leaving comments like I stopped the episode to write this comment because I can't believe you didn't see Titanic. And I'm like, damn, y'all. I know it's been a tough month. <laughs> and let me just tell y'all, no shade. OK, but like sometimes, sometimes we conflate great works of art with shit that we loved as a horny teenager. Mm -hmm. And so just all I'm saying is before you go on the Internet and chow down on this woman for not having seen something, just wait a beat and go, was I a horny teen when I watched that or is it a great? work of art would fran lebowitz stand this would she oh if so God. i'll proceed the eternal question is it good or was i horny <laughs> apply it to your life 
Apply it to your marriage. Apply it to your relationships. Is it good or was I horny? That's got to be an episode. Write that one down. <laughs> we're, doing, we're doing that episode. <laughs> we're doing it. <laughs> All right. So um, let's talk about this theme we got this week, shall we? Mm, let's do it. Speaking of, is it good or was I horny? <laughs> Our theme this week is whatever happened to straight male sex workers? <laughs> let's uh let's get into it care to unpack that a little bit yeah well i think that there was a moment a cultural moment because we're not making a case for or against or trying to sway people one way or the other but there was a cultural moment where there were a lot of movies about straight male sex workers so our reason for wanting to look at it as a theme is to question why did it go away? And I think I'm also particularly interested in, does it relate to the kind of feminist backlash that we've experienced that like to, to see women getting joy from sex has become taboo or culturally for a while, it wasn't culturally the way things were going. I think sex work is frequently a topic in a lot of film and TV and music for that matter. and. You know, obviously, typically from the female, the feminine perspective, it, it was interesting for, I think, for us growing up because there was the sense of like, oh, this is like a straight man performing sex work, right? Right. And the story is always so much different there than it was whenever there was an introduction of like a, f a woman sex worker. You know what I mean? Completely. And I think that that gendered aspect is what's interesting um, to me for sure. And that to grow up with that message that adult women also want to hire sex workers is something that we lost for a while. And that, you know, like you said, male sex workers, straight male sex workers were treated totally differently from from women totally differently. Like they they had more panache. They had more style. They weren't under the threat of violence. They weren't killed instantly. Like there was just all these things that fed into this horrible trope for so long that were missing from that particular narrative. And there were so many movies about straight male sex workers that I wondered, you know, why that was able to persist for as long as it did. Like they may kind of like yeah. male sex work was cool. The concept of it via all these TV shows and movies was that, oh, this guy must be a real stud. Mm -hmm. uh, he's doing some, the Lord's work, helping all these like, sat, <laughs> like helping to satisfy all these like lonely old ladies. You know what I mean? It was just all that whole narrative, but it's always such a different story than any kind of other sex work you have out there. And you're absolutely right about the idea that it's, you see less violence, less threat when it comes to this story. And that's just an interesting thing to think about. And it's an it's a interesting lens through which to look. You know what I mean? Right. And I, I don't think we don't do this very often, but I'm kind of interested in comparing these two films once we talk about both films. Because I think there are different messages being sent based on race and class and a whole bunch of a whole host of other things. So I think that that's something that I definitely want to look at after we talk about our films. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you're up first. So why don't why don't you go for it? What's your movie this week? So my movie is Sweet Sweetback's Badass Song from 1971, 
directed by Melvin Van Peebles. No, I haven't seen Sweetback. I haven't seen the cat. I mean, I, I don't want to see him. You just keep leaning and leaning and leaning. Get the f*** on my back, man! So this is fascinating for many points of view right off the bat. Um, first of all, I have to say that this is one of those movies that is so indicative and was so present in Black culture as a cult movie for so long. And in 2020, it was selected for preservation in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress for being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant, which is a big deal because this was not a movie made with the aspirations of being in the Library of Congress. Um, and then in the beginning of the movie, the first things you see are kind of this um, this text over the image of this man who's running. And the movie refers to itself as a hymn from the mouth of reality. And it, the, the dedication is this film is dedicated to all the brothers and sisters who had enough of the man. So this is not a movie that was like aspiring to be accepted by the Library of Congress. Um but that's part of what's interesting about it, you know, is that it was such an underground cult kind of movie for so long, but it was really saying something of the moment. So in 1971, you have to think about what was happening with the Black Panthers, what was happening with, you know, police violence and what was happening with our, with America. Which, again, is fascinating when you look at our current culture and how far we have not come from those issues. So just to kind of give some some background on the movie right away, um, the director was Melvin Van Peebles, but he also wrote the film. He sometimes refers to himself as Br'er Soul. So I think in the credits, he's Br'er Soul, but it's it's Melvin Van Peebles. That was just some 70s shit. You know, people in the 70s were like, my name is now Moonflower Sunbeam. Like, it's that, that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so the plot of this um, is that this very young orphaned boy is taken in by this brothel in the 1940s. And he is kind of like the towel delivery boy, like he does kind of odd jobs. And he's raped. One of the one of the sex workers pulls him in one day and is like just pulls him on top of her. And that's how he gets his nickname of Sweet Sweetback is he is raped by this, um, you know, assaulted by this this sex worker. And that is a hardcore way to start a movie. Like that is no punches are being pulled, <laughs> no punches being pulled. And it's something we so rarely see, which is sex abuse in boys being shown on screen. And it's so it's not done comically, but it is not done with the seriousness that it would be done today. Um like in that like that Antoine Fisher kind of way. But what's interesting is like, so right away I was struck with this notion that this is a man who goes through life with a nickname he got from his most traumatic point in his life. And he goes on to become a sex worker at that brothel and he does live sex shows. And, um, you know, he's kind of like a big deal in that world. So it's that notion of, of, you know, who is gazing at him, who's looking at him, who's participating with him in these like really bodily traumatic issues and knowing that he was groomed into this this isn't a choice this is something that um is again like his his deepest point of trauma so the, the movie is basically about how um 
as as an adult, he is kind of offered up by his boss as um, a suspect for a murder case because the the police are like, well, we just need to to like you know arrest someone. We'll let him out in a couple of days. It'll be fine. That is not what happens. All hell breaks loose. So that is kind of the, the premise of the film. And yeah, I just I don't know. I just really it made me think so much about performative sexuality and gender roles and violence and blackness, truly. Like it is, there's a funeral scene where someone says um, that the person who died overdosed on black misery. And I think that, you know, how black bodies are sexualized from birth is a big part of the discussion of this film. So it's done in this very 70s, you know, kind of desert dusty way um like it seems like the kind of film that was also thought about in a dream but like robert altman with three women (laughs) yeah but yeah it's just got this really ethereal quality to it that you're not sure what's going to happen yeah i mean and honestly like i'm glad that you picked this movie just in general like i'm glad that this movie is something that we watched and we get to talk about on this podcast because you know I have so much admiration for Melvin Van Peebles just in general, because I think he's like a true artist, right? Like if you read about Melvin Van Peebles, he's like, he's a writer, he's written novels, he's written plays, he's written albums, he's a musician, he's a director, he's acted, um, you know, so much of like his life has been lived as an actual artist. The thing that is so interesting about Sweetback is that so I, I'm a big fan of his first movie. It's called Story of a Three Day Pass. Um, and he made that movie in France. And it, it's basically like, you know, here's an American guy that at some point went to France, which as an a black artist, you know, it seems to me that they had way more respect for black artists in France than they did in America at that time. Um, and he basically was brought into the Cinémathèque Française, which is essentially like where auteur theory and French New Wave was started. And he was brought to France by Henri Langlois, who was the guy that started it. And he's such a huge person in like the film preservation cinephile community. So he was like a legit guy. Yeah. And after that, came to America, made Watermelon Man, which is like his big Hollywood movie. And then Mm. when they were like, this is great. We want you to make more Hollywood movies. He was like, fuck that. I'm making sweet, sweet backs. Badass song. I'm having complete creative control. I'm telling the story that I want to tell. And I'm going to finance it myself. (laughs) Absolutely. And, you know, when it comes down to it, that's what this movie is. This is basically like this single person's vision. And... That's why I'm like so glad that we're talking about it, because I don't think that I would say this is probably one of the first movies that we're, we've talked about on this podcast that is really that is really like a singular artist's vision um, and was seen from like top to bottom that way. Also, it's very rare that I, again, it's making a comeback uh, in a bigger way and in a big screen way. But it's so rare that we get to talk about black auteurs and Melvin Van Peebles definitely was one. Absolutely. I mean, honestly, like he was, there's a lot of debate, I think, going on right now about the term black exploitation and, you know, whether or not that's a good term or a bad term and whether or not the whole, you know, genre in general was problematic or not. Um, and a lot of people, I think, classify 
sweet sweetback says you know like the first black exploitation movie or one of the first black exploitation movies but i actually think it's not i think it's doing something much bigger it's a art film if you want to get right down to it there yeah. needs to be more distribution of people like him and other you know black auteurs which is i think the reason why we don't talk about them as much as we should as a film culture do you know what i mean right and i think that it's that apt it's it's kind of and it correct me if i'm wrong but it feels like it comes from a place of shame like if we if we don't talk about it then we don't have to acknowledge the fact that we haven't been putting any effort money or time into venerating and lifting these voices it's just really hard for you know bipoc people in general to get their art in this world do you know what I mean? But I really do think it comes from this idea that we just did not put enough effort into making somebody like Melvin Van Peebles a household name in the same way that we would talk about like Jean-Luc Godard or, you know, whoever. Um, and that is shameful. That's shameful. It absolutely is. And I think that there's uh, his son, Mario Van Peebles, was more kind of our generation's Van Peebles. <laughs> so. Um, he actually did a, a movie called Badass that is about, it's like a companion piece to Sweet Sweet Peck's Badass song about how the film was made, if you're interested in, in exploring that further. Um, and he also appears in this movie as a young Sweet Peck. But basically, it is a different conversation. And you can tell that his school of thought and his school of training for film was more expansive because he was able to cast his son as the young version of Sweet Peck without... I think probably a second thought. And it's like a very, it's a violent scene, you know, it's, it's a traumatic violent scene. And that would not happen today. It would not happen today for better and worse. But I think that he's able to show his expansiveness as a creator um, and to really talk about things that are presently happening um, and that persist in black culture through his art. It's just, he's, he's a really masterful storyteller. It's composed very in a very interesting way um and it's very artistic yeah. and I, I just love it i love it for that all right so my movie for this week for the theme of whatever happened to straight male sex workers is a film that was made in the neo-noir style it's a movie from 1980 it's called american gigolo directed by paul schrader his name is Julian Kay. Was it what you expected? His business is pleasure. Hello, Judy. Very sexy lady. Very good looking woman. So let me ask you, Daniel, let me ask you like a real, a real ass question. Okay. So is the term gigolo, how do you feel about this word? I'm just curious. I actually don't know anything about the origins of this word. I'm just simply curious about it. Yeah. I mean, to me, it seems like an outdated term. It's not quite as offensive as prostitute, but it's not something that should be used. Um, because I think the the origins of it is that it was originally like referred to as like a dancing partner for women, but it grew into um, this notion that male sex workers who were gigolos were worked with a higher class client. And that they were, it was a word that signified that they were not gay male sex workers. So kind of, it was a distinguishing word between 
set for sexuality and for class. But we don't have to use it anymore. Richard Gere in this movie, he was a sex worker. So you're basically <laughs> telling me that Deuce Bigelow, male gigolo is redundant. Like a male gigolo is a redundancy. One hundred percent. Okay. Nobody okay. fact checked gotcha. that accurately enough. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, just <laughs> simply curious. Okay. So um, for my movie, like right off the bat, this film was written and directed by Paul Schrader. If you do not know him, I'm certain, again, you can find somebody on a film podcast talking about him. Okay. So I'm not going to go too, too much into it. So he was a part of that whole new Hollywood era, which included, of course, Martin Scorsese, who we've talked about for two weeks in a row now, an all-time record. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) He, in fact, wrote four Martin Scorsese movies, including Taxi Driver, Raging Bull and The Last Temptation of Christ. I can't remember the fourth. I think it was Bringing Out the Dead. He also wrote and directed this movie called Hardcore with George C. Scott, which I think is an absolutely bonkers film and might be extra credit. I'm not sure, but I just had to say the words. I had to say that movie. (laughs) Um, And then most recently, he made First Reformed, which basically throws our honorable classic movie fuckboy Ethan Hawke into the sexy priest canon. Oh, Lord. So now, because of Paul Schrader, Ethan Hawke is a sexy priest. Uh, thank you. And the last thing I'll say is that he directed the absolutely notorious movie called The Canyons, mm-hmm. which was written by Brett Easton Ellis. And stars Lindsay Lohan and that porn star James Dean. And let me just tell you right now, when I heard rumors about this movie maybe happening, I wanted to see it in this like total, like I'm a high schooler waiting to see faces of death for the first time type of way. Like I was so curious and jazzed and like excited to see it. But then I saw it and that's all I will say. (laughs) <laughs> did you see it in a theater did you watch it at home no, i saw it on itunes i think that's where it got distributed or something it was only oh. on itunes there's listen google it there's actually this entire um i want to say it's either gq magazine it's like this entire story about the production of that movie and they interviewed paul schrader it was insane like it's insane you know this was like the high Lindsay lohan era just go and search it. This is also, I feel like, the era of taking Brett Easton Ellis and Paul Schrader and putting them together is like marrying coke and and heroin <laughs> and coming up with like crack cocaine. Yes. It's like if shit posting was film, it's truly like amazing. <laughs> um the one of the most interesting things that I that I think about when I think of Paul Schrader is that he grew up really religious, uh, which I think says a lot about his films. And, you know, he's he was actually like I think he was like a philosophy and theology major when college. And I know we talked about French New Wave, but like a lot of those French New Wave directors, he was actually a film critic before he was a director. And, you know. There you go. Um, a lot of times when people are critics before they start making this shit, you're like, okay, they got some opinions. And to marry both of those ideas together, he Schrader loves this French director named Robert Brisson. And 
basically Robert Brisson not only influenced the French New Wave, but he had a lot of religious themes in his work. So it kind of makes sense that Schrader and Brisson are like married. In fact, Paul Schrader loved him so much that he stole the ending from this Brisson movie called Pickpocket and made it the ending of American Gigolo. So, and he did it like for a few other of his movies. So think about that next time you watch American Gigolo, if you watch it again. Just know the ending is the Brisson ending. That is wild! Yeah. All of this that I'm saying right now is to explain to you that Paul Schrader, to me, is like a real film grump, like in a classic style. It's the thing that we talked about when we started this podcast about like how we want to be inclusive, right? And I come from this world where it pays to have an opinion about some shit. And, you know, having really strong film opinions is annoying, but at times it's kind of amusing. And and sadly, when I think about Paul Schrader, I'm like, it's I kind of understand swag a little bit. Like he posts, like he has a Facebook account, by the way, a public Facebook account. Uh, and he posts a lot of his like film opinions and that kind of stuff. And it's like, I'll reactivate my Facebook account just to read Paul Schrader's Facebook wall. Like, I'm just like, I'm in a mood. I want to hear you know, a film grump talk about how terrible the new Marvel movie is or whatever. Um, even though he does, this isn't Marvel, but he has a really big crush on Gal Gadot. Um, it's kind of weird. Um, but you know what? Who doesn't have a crush on Gal Gadot? Whatever. Right. Right. <laughs> I don't know. So to give you a brief synopsis of the movie, American Gigolo stars Richard Gere as said Gigolo. And Lorne Hutton as his married love interest. The score of the film was created by the undisputed king of sexy disco cokehead music, Giorgio Moroder, and features my second favorite Blondie song of all time, which is Call Me. My first favorite Blondie song for the record is Sunday Girl, but Call Me is my second favorite. So there you go. And I have to mention that American Gigolo was one of the first Hollywood films where a major Hollywood actor did Full Frontal. Second week in a row talking about Full Frontal too. <laughs> you know what I mean? Sometimes the themes overlap. Martin Scorsese and Full Frontal. <laughs> I know. But... The synopsis is that Richard Gere plays this character named Julian. He is a male escort who lives in this um, like flashy apartment in Westwood, which if you're not from L.A. is basically like where UCLA is and also like a bunch of like weird, fancy high rise apartments in it's like on Wilshire. Is that where? Yeah, I think so. Um, which I assume that's where he lived. He lived in one of those like giant high rises off Wilshire, but he spends a lot of his time working out, hanging out by the pool, learning foreign languages. He's separating his fancy Giorgio Armani shirts from his non-fancy Giorgio Armani shirts. And he's like hanging out with rich older women at like Bonham's auction showrooms and shit like that. But he gets this offer to drive out to Palm Springs for a job. And it ends up being this kind of creepy, intense situation with this like scary, older, rich guy and his wife. But, you know, he straps in and does it, comes back to L.A. And that's that. 
And at the same time, he meets the Lauren Hutton character in a hotel bar. And she's like very intrigued by the idea of hiring him as an escort, even though she's married to a state senator. So there you go. And they somehow end up in bed together and then proceed to have an actual affair, which, of course, is high stakes because of said senator. And then, you know, of course, while that's happening, the woman that he was with in Palm Springs is suddenly found dead. And of course, Julian is now the prime suspect and he's being investigated by Hector Elizondo. So, yeah, the rest of the film is him trying to figure out who set him up. He's making fun of Hector Elizondo's clothes. And then he's trying to figure out if Lauren Hutton will actually like leave her husband for him. Unreal. So and, you know, to put this in a historical context. Yeah. This is the 1980s, so a guy like Julian is probably, like, he's seen as, like, the coolest guy ever, right? Yep. I mean, it's total yuppie porn, if you want to get down to it. And I don't want to cut this, but I'm just going to say it. Um, I mean no disrespect to you, sir, Richard Gere, sir. Most people know him from, like, Pretty Woman, where he's, like, he plays essentially the inverse character of the mo- of this movie. Exactly. And everybody thinks that movie is, like, a beautiful Hollywood romance, but I'm like, yo, this guy is kind of greasy still. Even, even in this <laughs> rom-com, like, <laughs> he's creeping he's me out. He's upgraded his greasiness. <laughs> and, yo, like, okay, when it comes down to it, I remember Richard Gere most from this movie called Looking for Mr. Goodbar, where he also plays a sex worker in that movie. What? And I got to tell you, I would absolutely love to talk about that movie on this podcast, but I, but I don't think it's available to watch at oh. all. Like, I think it's there must be a rights issue because. I had to go through like my work channels to find that movie. And there, it's like, I think you can find it on a bootleg, maybe a YouTube bootleg, but it's just not available. Otherwise, I would love to discuss it because it is such an interesting text to talk about. But um, anyway, in American Gigolo, I feel like there's this arrogance to Julian, you know, and that's because he's rich and he drives a convertible and dresses nice. But he also... He's kind of like always like giving himself his own importance. He's like this. I'm a he's being a savior to all these unhappy or unlovable women, which I mean, it's annoying. Yeah, there's this whole section where he basically talks about what it's like to give a woman her first orgasm in 10 years. And like, it's a it's a lot. And I'm just kind of like greasy. I don't know. I don't know what I think (laughs) about this. It's annoying. But I think like what we were trying to hint at at the beginning of the episode, which is that that I think the savior aspect of these types of stories comes up quite a bit when it comes to male, straight male sex work as, you know, they're a savior, they're helping, they're creating happiness for women. I feel like that's not the vibe when it's the opposite, the gendered opposite. But also, like, the thing that I think does come into play with a lot of stuff about sex work in general is the idea of respectability. And the thing about American Gigolo that's interesting is that, you know, Julian might be like a fancy male escort where, I mean, there's like scenes of him where like he's got people collecting his mail and shining his shoes. And, you know, that puts him in a different cast 
among the people in his world. But at the end of the day, he's not allowed in the world of these uber rich people that he works for, even if he has like all their gear, even if he's wearing the Armani and he's going to the same restaurants, he's still not allowed there. And his fellow sex worker, Leon James, played by Bill Duke, is the one who kind of points that out to him. Like you're not you're alienating yourself from us, but you're also not one of them. Yeah, because I think that there's a scene where he goes to the leather bar to find him when he figures out that he's being blamed for this murder. And, you know, he goes in there. He knows the people there. He's you know, there's a certain language that they speak. You know, there's his quote unquote boss. He's confronting about it. It's kind of sets up that double life scenario where he's in this underground world that he has to navigate, which is honestly, I think, what makes this film very, I mean, that is a very film noirish type of um, mechanism is the, you know, dealing with the underworld. And also the idea that he knows that he's being set up, which is such a fascinating storytelling device, I think, is when it's kind of what happened in Sweetback too, where they're doing illegal activities but then they have a crime committed against them. Like mm-hmm. they're being set up and it puts them in this weird position. And, you know, that's a film noir thing as well. Like, I think that that's a, that, but that also is just sort of an interesting sort of plot device because it is really like, what are, what is going to happen? Like what's going to happen yeah. when you don't, you're not able to advocate for yourself because what you're doing is technically illegal, you know? Right. And that's, I mean, again, like we see that a lot in terms of, People who don't report, you know, assaults because they don't think the police will believe them because they're sex workers. We see that in, you know, across the board from people who are marginalized or who are doing somewhat criminal activities to survive, then what kind of justice can they expect? And they kind of, you know, walk this this line that's very interesting. And this I had never seen this before. Yeah. Um, well aware of it, but just had never had any interest in in seeing it. But it was it was better than I thought it would be. And it was definitely like um, it's it's a quintessential 80s movie, which I really appreciate. Like it is just palm trees, like blazers. It is like that, like you said, the convertible, like super greasy tans and just like it was it's an 80s movie through and through. Yeah, I think it single handedly gave us the design maybe it's like a now a kind of design cliche of the like blinds of like people with like blinds with like neon coming through them like the same way like if you see someone hanging out in gravity boots then you're in an 80s movie exactly yeah gravity boots uh completely do you i don't know anybody that has that anymore is that a thing that people do still is hang upside down i don't think so he was like really going for he was not just hanging upside down. He was like circling his arms and holding weights. And I'm like, isn't it not enough, sir, that you were hanging by your ankles? You have to do all this. I was like, I couldn't even put one foot in a boot like right side <laughs> up like that seems insane. I'm like, you must be really fit to hang upside down in a doorway. Um, I feel like there are probably too many rentals that they didn't get their deposit back because they probably ripped out some of the the door jam or the plasters on the wall so people are like maybe we stop hanging upside down in our apartments (laughs) it's like can we make a 
Bowflex for these people. I don't want another. Why are, why is my crown molding constantly being fucked up in this nine unit apartment complex that I own? There's another part of this movie that I love too, which is that I love anytime there's a car that's being taken apart in a movie to find a stash. Yes. Like I love the, that movie, the French connection because of that, where there's like, I love anybody who's like removing a door panel or cutting the seat lining to find something. Cause that's like, that seems insane to me where I'm like, God, we got to (laughs) take apart this entire car. Like this must take all day. Also, like, where do you even start? Like, I don't know where to start taking apart a car. Like, would I start with the door? Would I pull off the, the yes. like, the, the stereo? How do I know where to start getting into this car? I don't know. <laughs> the trunk? Like, I have no, like, way in. I know. I would take everything out of the glove compartment and be like, okay, I'm tired. I don't really know what else. This is going to take forever. Like, it seems so daunting of a task to take apart a car. Like, I need an Allen wrench? Fuck this. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So here's all I'll say about American Gigolo 2. So, like, you know, there's the femme fatale character, which is Lauren Hutton. And it's that thing where she's obsessed with him. And she wants him to love her, but then she's always vacillating between whether or not she can be involved with him. And I think that the murder is kind of the ultimate test of that, right? Is that she's his alibi, right? So if she's his alibi, she has to admit to being involved with him, but then she's also like, but can I be involved with him because he's in this line of work and maybe that's not respectable to somebody like me who was married to a politician dare i say the worst criminal but whatever um but i gotta tell you i'm not gonna give away the ending but it is a real head scratcher for me yeah and no and knowing that this is like a brissonian ending it's like a morality tale i'm like Wow, this is so crazy the way this ended. So I'm curious if if anybody has thoughts, email us. Because I'm just sort of like, huh. Like literally, I've seen this movie twice, and that, and like every time I've seen it, I'm like, what? I mean, it was yeah, like a WTF moment, to be honest. Yeah. Well, it kind of like the ending comes out of nowhere because, and and now it makes sense if it's been like quilted onto this other movie and stolen. Now it makes sense because it like comes out of nowhere. Truly, and I, I can't say that I enjoy it, but it's it's the ending that I think wraps it up in a nice way, but it's not maybe the realistic one or the one that I was expecting. Right, knowing what I know about Paul Schrader. But you know what? Who knows? If you, like, you know, that's what movies do. They surprise and delight us. And and when it comes down to it, like we've we've seen like two very different types of male sex workers in these movies doing totally different stuff. And I, I can't say that Julian as a, as a character, I, I don't know. I, I, I find like it's kind of like when we're talking about the Wolf of Wall Street, where you're just kind of like, wow, rich people and rich people things. What's that like? But I don't really know if I have much sympathy for him or find him. I don't know if I'm rooting for him. Do you know what I mean? Whereas I'm rooting for Sweetback. I'm rooting. Yeah, I completely agree. Like, I am rooting for Sweetback 
and I am not rooting for Julian. And what was interesting to me about that is that I felt like I'm watching like a very abrasive, arrogant, smug dude. So when he gets in trouble or he gets, you know, possibly framed for murder and, you know, that I kind of feel like good. <laughs> you, you act like you're above the law already <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like someone should at least be looking into your shit because you act like you are above the law i think that's a common criticism though of american juggalo just from stuff that i've read which is that i don't think that julian as a character is set up in a way that makes you sympathetic for him when bad things start happening to him and you know, sometimes it do, it do be like that. But I just in this case, like if we're going to compare, you know, the two films and like who these two characters are as male sex workers, like I'm going, yeah, Julian's not it. And yet with Sweet Sweetback's badass song, you really do root for him. Like as this is happening, as he's being pursued, you're like, God, I hope he fucking makes it. And I hope that people mm -hmm. understand that he's not the one that did it. You know, like you right. just, there's more of that. And that so much of his action in the movie is reactive and not proactive. And I think with Julian, it's the opposite. And he's also like, he's a hypocrite. Like there was one point in the, in the beginning where he says, um, like uh, Lauren Hutton's character is like, you know, I, I just want to know what it's like to be with you one time. And he's like, I don't do that. And I'm like, bitch, you just did that. You went to Palm Springs for this one time. <laughs> and now you're in a fucking frame for murder. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And yeah, I mean, when it comes down to it, like it is. I mean, this is just class on both sides of the spectrum. Right. And, you know, it's an interesting pair of movies to put together for this theme. Yeah, I'm really glad you chose it. And I think I think it worked out well. Like there this is yet another example of when we did we didn't know that there were gonna be like commonalities in what we picked, but it really showcased the theme very well. I love it when that happens. We have real quick, um, or not, take your time. We have a, a question for our <laughs> resident <leisurely>. programmer. <laughs> Feel leisurely about it. What's the rush? We're all at home nowadays. Uh, we have a question for our resident programmer, Millie. So take it away. We have an email from Erica. Danielle and Millie, I love your podcast. The concept is so great, and it's such a treat to be let in on your friendship, your humor, and your overall movie insights. So many things to say, but I'll just get right to my programming request. Okay, almost all of my favorite films fit a category I like to call beach noir. Here's what I mean. The Night of the Iguana, 1964, The Talented Mr. Ripley, 2000, Leventura, 1961, Dead Calm, 1989, Knife in the Water, 1962. Anyway, I'm always looking for movies that would fit into that category. I would love to hear what you think of my list and hear any suggestions you might have for me. Mm, thanks. I, too, am a big fan of uh, you call it beach noir, water noir. I don't know. Water theme noir. I, I don't know. Because, you know, I think there is a distinction between beach noir and then noir that takes place on a boat, <laughs> which is there's quite a few, quite a few at sea murders. Uh, and actually, Dead Calm is a great movie starring one of the stars of Dead Calm being Billy Zane from Titanic. I mean, hello. We completed the circle. Um, so here's what I'll say about this. There's a movie that I love called Night Tide. It's from 1961. 
Um, it stars a very young, cute Dennis Hopper, uh, and he plays a sailor. And it, it was directed by this director, Curtis Harrington, who was uh, one of the first directors in kind of the new queer cinema movement or era. Um, he is such an interesting director. You gotta Google him and read all about him and his kind of like friendships with all these like kind of interesting LA people. Uh, he was kind of a part of that whole sort of like Jack Parsons, Marjorie Cameron crew that followed Aleister Crowley. And it was, it was a little witchy. It's kind of great. But, um, so we made this movie Night Tide, which is essentially, you know, this it's it's noir in the sense that it has a mystery element to it. But it takes place on the boardwalk in Santa Monica. Uh, it's a it's about a woman that he meets that he falls in love with who might be a mermaid, might be a criminal, might be like a siren, you know, from like a myth, a mythological you know, subplot. It's really interesting. It's so wonderful in this like tonal way because it's in black and white and it takes place on the beach. And it's like, it's kind of dreamy. And of course, because Curtis Harrington is an awesome director with like awesome influences. It's like, you know, there's like a tarot card reading in it and it's very like, you know, mythical and it's spooky and fun. So that's what I would recommend if you're looking for kind of a beach noir-ish type of movie is Night Tide, 1961. I also just want to mention that uh, one of our listeners wrote in and asked if we have any place where we list our movies uh, for people who are hearing impaired. And we do have a letterboxed account, which is probably the best um the best way to access that right away. But if there are any needs that we can address uh, like that, or if anyone knows of any software or anything that we can do on our end to make that easier for people, uh, please write in and let us know. And what what is our Letterboxd account name? Is it just, I saw what you did, Pod? Yeah, we're just on there as the podcast. Basically, if you look at our account, you'll see all the films that we've picked. They're kind of organized by episode. And the date viewed is actually the date of the episode recording. So basically it, it's kind of got all that information there for you as well. Just the fun. I know it's kind of seemed kind of funky because it letterbox is essentially a film diary and people kind of use it in that way. And so we're just kind of using it as our film diary for the podcast. So that's awesome. And we'll put a link to it in this week's episode so you can um, see where it is. Cool. 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 And yeah, friend us on there too. If you're, if you're in those letterbox streets, uh, be sure to follow us there. But um, I, I am I'm I could not be more pleased to ask you this question. What are the movies for the next episode? <laughs> OK, you're going to have to guess the theme. And y'all are real good at that. But our, <laughs> our movies for next week are Chud from 1984 and Graveyard Shift from 1990. Oh my god! <laughs> I just love that you said "chud." I'm so I like saying thrilled. <laughs> um. So yeah, guess the theme. Follow us on social if you haven't already. We're on I saw Pod, um, on Twitter and Instagram, and the email address is always I saw what you did Pod at gmail.com Send us your thoughts on the endings of American Gigolo. Send us your 
Fran Lebowitz stories. And um, I guess we'll see you next time. See you later, Atlians. <laughs>This has been an Exactly Right production. Our producer is Lauren Elizabeth Brown. Our engineer is Annalise Nelson. Our social media assistant is Taryn Mazza. Our theme songs by Tom Breifogel. Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgareth, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod. And as always, please listen, subscribe, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. Listen.